Hello and welcome to the 90s Galore Podcast. I'm Andy Zaldivar, your host once again, ladies and gentlemen. We are back better than ever here in the 90s Galore Podcast. Happy New Year to everybody out there. How's everybody doing? Hope everyone had a um, great New Year. If you're like me, you're broke, but uh, I hope you're not like me. Um, yeah, Happy New Year, man. It's 2020 and the 90s Galore Podcast is almost turning one. Uh, like I mentioned in the la- on the last episode, we're going to be one on January 21st, and we're thinking of doing some uh, exciting stuff for that uh, one-year anniversary episode. Um, once again, ladies and gentlemen, I uh, urge you to please uh, send me some uh, you know ideas uh, either on uh, via um, Instagram or Twitter uh, or on Apple Podcasts. Um, send me a voice message. Or however you want to do it, um, yeah. Let me know who, if you want uh, who you'd like to see me uh, profile. We can uh, profile your favorite uh, artist, band, whatever. So hopefully we can get some uh, suggestions and uh, and we can go with that. Uh, so yeah, we're excited. Um, we have our guest on tonight. This is his. I, th- I don't know. He's a. Re- I think he's a regular now. Yeah, he's he's gonna be a regular now. He's a uh, he's our uh, mainstay. You know. And uh, we're excited to have him have him back, Mr. Jerry Feldman. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back, Andy. Absolutely, man. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you too. Absolutely, man. And uh, you know, I got this uh, new equipment. We're we're stoked, man. I feel like a professional. Yeah, I, I checked it out. Huh? It looks great. I, I went and saw it just barely, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it looks. <laughs> Exactly. That's great. Uh, you know, I I feel like um, uh, you know, I feel like a professional. I feel like one. I, I don't know if I if I look like one, but uh, you know, I guess uh, I got some better tools, man. Absolutely. I'm legit now, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting there. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely getting there. Yeah, man. So you know. Again, it's man. It's been almost a year since we started this thing, and uh, we're we're excited, man. It's it's fun to do this. It's I have a great time. Have a listeners everywhere, uh, you know, around the world, and that's it. You know, thank God for um for technology, right, Jerry? Oh yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, 1990 is 30 years ago. If now that it's 2020, so. Oh, man. It's a lot older than than it was a, a year ago, and you said you can play 1990 30 years ago. 30 years, so, man. Yeah, it's crazy to think that. And the Los Angeles Dodgers are going on 32 years without a World Series championship. Oh, you got to bring that up. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, but you know what? Uh, we were cheated out of our last two, so. Uh, yeah, well, anyways, that's literally cheated. Yeah, you watch the news. <laughs> Uh, well, it hasn't been, uh, nothing's come out yet, right? I don't think they've uh, been able to prove that, but, uh, yeah. the speculations are out there for sure. Uh, anyways, Jerry, we got an awesome show in store tonight, man. I am, I am stoked about tonight's show because this is one of my favorite, favorite bands of all time. I don't care what genre, what, whatever. Uh, these guys are epic, amazing. Uh, personally speaking, I, I, Arguably one of my favorite bands of all time, Jerry. Uh, I don't know about. Oh yeah. What's that? 
Yep, at least for the 90s, absolutely. I would, you know, next to Nirvana, they're a strong number two, I would say, if not number one. Right, arguably, right? Uh, yeah. But for me, I, you know, I these guys are just, uh, I don't know, Jerry, they just, they, they're just a, a fantastic, you know, band. Every time I hear their songs, man, they take me back. You know, they take me back to that place. I always talk about, you know, reminiscing and, and you know, the, the music that we listen to, how it takes us back. And, um, you know, we we recreate those uh, those memories in, in our heads and our hearts. And these guys are no exception to that. Soundgarden, of course, Jerry, we're talking about Soundgarden. And, uh, but you're a big Soundgarden fan, right, Jerry? Yeah, I I think I first heard Soundgarden in 19, 1990. It was right after Louder Than Love came out. I had a friend who I used to play in a band with. He was a few older than older than me, few years older. And he literally lived in a storage unit. I'm not kidding. He lived in a storage unit. He played guitar. He used to buff the floors at Kmart, like a graveyard shift. I was like... 14 or 15 and he was like 19 so he was like an old man to me but one thing he had in his little storage unit that he lived in is crazy crazy tapes so I, you know he was always a go-to source for all my music uh-huh. and i think louder than love he had on tape and he let me check it out and said you gotta check out mainly the singer you know the singer is gonna blow you away and sure enough he wasn't wrong mm. Wow, that's awesome, man. Louder than love. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that a little bit right now. And I mean, we're, let's go ahead and just jump in, man. And just a little trivia, though, Jerry. Yeah, I, I, you know I'm a trivia buff, man. I like to get it, you know, through those little nuggets of trivia. And um, did you know that they got their name? You know where they got their name from, Soundgarden? Not exactly, no. Uh, they got their name from a, uh, actually a National Oceanographic an atmospheric administration public artworks display. It's called mm-hmm. A Sound Garden on Lake Washington in Seattle, Washington. And uh yeah, it's basically they're basically these tall twenty one foot high steel towers. There's okay. twelve there's twelve of them, yeah. And the, at the top of each one there's an organ pipe with a uh, a weather a weather vane affixed to it. And uh, they were designed by wow. yeah. Yeah, so they were designed by a sculptor named uh, Douglas Hollis, and when Chris Cornell passed away a couple years ago, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, they kind of became a a little makeshift memorial. Okay. Uh, Yeah, so it's kind of cool, you know. Um, Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's up in Seattle, man, and, you know, I I had been up there, um, you know, I was stationed up there, right, in the mid-90s, and... That's one thing I I never really got to explore. I never got to explore Seattle the way I wanted to, man, because uh, I was only 18, 19 years old. I was underage. I couldn't really, you know, get out to that, you know, get out there and uh, really explore. Like, you know, um, again, I was on, I was, I wasn't 21. I couldn't get into the bars and, and those cool uh, clubs and, and, and kind of, but the, but the grunching was kind of, uh, it had died down a little bit by the time I got there. Um, yeah, you know, mid ninety, mid ninety five, and then I think the height of it was maybe, you know, maybe the year prior, mid, mid late ninety four, you know, 
and then you know Kurt Cobain had passed in in 94 April I think it was in 1994 so so anyways my point being is that uh although I was in Seattle you know um I, I didn't get to fully experience it the way I wanted to uh, but nonetheless, it was pretty cool being up there. I mean, just, you know, at the uh, tail end of everything, you know, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great bands from going back to Jimi Hendrix and oh. Seattle, you know, that's, that's his hometown too. So you have Hendrix in the sixties, you have Hart in the seventies, you have Queensryche and a few other metal bands in the eighties. And then in the nineties, it's the full blown grunge scene. So. Yeah, they've had a great scene there for many, many years. Exactly, exactly, Jerry. It's a, it's a great scene up there, and if you haven't been up there, it's a interesting place, man. A lot of rain, a lot of rain. It's uh, everything's green. It's beautiful up there, and then the sun when the sun does come out, man, it's it's a it's a whole different world. Um, you know, there's water everywhere. You got the Puget Sound, Lake Washington. Uh, you know, islands everywhere. Just um, it's it's a cool place, man. Very unique. Uh, be, being up there, coming from uh, so you know, being a Southern California kid, where you know the only body of water you see is uh, uh well, the Pacific Ocean, right? right? But uh, up there, you're kind of uh, surrounded by by water, you know, and it's just a different uh, scenery, nonetheless. But yeah, I've, I've been there. It's, it is, it's definitely different. I mean, like most major cities, it's also a little sketchy. You know, you have yeah. a lot of homeless kids and drug addicts, even some like, uh, you know, they've got their own like hip hop scene up there too. So right. it's not just uh, long haired grunge kids with flannels and Doc Martens, you know, they've got all the same big city problems that most cities have. But I think because it has, you know, some nice areas, some ugly areas, everything in between, that's what breeds a lot of creativity with these bands and these music scenes and I think you have to have the good with the bad in order to have something as eclectic as Soundgarden and no Nirvana and, and other bands. No doubt, man. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, like I said, then it, it, again, it rains a lot, you know, so you, you got to really find something to occupy your time with, you know. And But in I do believe, I don't know if it, will, it still is the, uh, man, the suicide capital of the world I don't, I don't, or of the country. <laughs> I remember hearing that a while ago because of the rain. Actually, I looked that statistic up not that long ago, and Alaska is the state with the highest suicide rate. Is that right? Yeah, Alaska. Oh, well, because they don't have sun. Well, just like it rains a ton in Seattle, in Alaska they actually don't have sun for, I think, a third of the year or something. So it's just oh. too close to the uh, North Pole or something there. Yeah. But yeah, Seattle is similar because it's a similar climate. It's also very up there. It's very north. It borders really close to Canada. So mm. I see that too being a depressing place where you're indoors a lot of the time. You're dealing with a lot of rain and, and bad weather. And yeah. Why not just stay inside and write a song and play <laughs> some guitar? Right. Exactly. And, and it was that was a downer, man. I mean, I, I like the rain. I, I, I enjoy, I appreciate all the seasons, but you know, there were times where it's just like, man, I just want to go out and hang out, do something, go to the park. I mean, you know, enjoy some sun. But again, coming from Southern California, you know, it's just a whole different, a whole different uh, culture shock, right? You know, for me. 
uh, being when I was up there and but uh, but yeah, man, you know, let's get into Soundgarden here. Uh, they were formed in nineteen eighty four, Jerry. What's that? I said let's do it. Yeah, man, yeah. And the original line lineup consisted of Chris Cornell, Hiro Yamamoto, and Kim Thayo, man. And, they, Yamamoto and Theo had moved out to uh, Seattle from Park Forest, Illinois, along with Bruce Pavitt. I think that's his name. I pr- pronounce it Pavitt or Pavitt. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, Bruce Pavitt, Jerry. Is, was he the original guitarist or singer? No, he was because I know Chris Cornell in '84 was the drummer. Yes, you cor- you're correct, but. He actually wasn't part of the band. He he, he founded uh, Sub Pop Records later on. Oh, okay, and, got uh, it. That's kind of you know I, I didn't I had I never knew that. In doing the research for this uh, particular episode, I found that out. And uh, so in anyways, he uh, he had I think it was with uh, anyway yeah no no I don't want to get ahead of myself here Jerry. I just just so I mean Soundgarden man I, <laughs> I'm so excited about Soundgarden. Um, so the, they were called the Shemps, right? And uh, they yeah. broke up. And Hiro Yamamoto, the bassist, the original bassist, uh, and Cornell remained in contact. Um, so, but shortly after that, Yamamoto and Cornell, uh, you know, they started jamming again. And uh, they brought in Scott Sunquist as a drummer. And since Cornell was, like you mentioned, he was uh, doing lead vocals and drums. Uh, but Sunquist left uh, after about a year, and they brought in uh, Mr. Matt Cameron. From mm. the, yeah, so you know who ended up being the uh, the mainstay, right? And um, he came in from a band uh, called Skinyard. But yeah, I'm very familiar with Skinyard. As a quick side note, so Skinyard yeah. was a band that came out in the mid '80s. The uh, guitarist for Skinyard was this guy named Jack and Dino. Right. Jack and Dino was also a record producer mm-hmm. and an engineer, and he ended up engineering and producing Nirvana's Bleach album. Right. Yeah. So I, that's that's pretty awesome credit, you know, to say, yeah, I pretty much recorded Nirvana's first album, <laughs> in addition to being in a band with Matt Cameron from Soundgarden. So it's just a, a pretty cool thing on his resume, I would say. Oh, absolutely, man! And it's pretty cool how a lot of the the Seattle bands, man, of that era, um, they all have kind of a they're all kind of intertwined. They're all kind of uh, connected in some way. You know, this guy, like you just mentioned, you know, this guy produced this album, and then he played uh, drums on this album for this group, and then he came back. You know, just so everybody was everybody kind of everybody knew each other up there. You know, because it's kind of isolated, and um, so so yeah. Yeah, man, good point, you know. Um, so they, they brought in Matt Cameron, and in 1986, a lady by the name of Susan Silver began to manage the band. Jerry, so Susan Silver. Yeah. That's, go ahead. She came, I was going to say, she was. Uh, she managed a lot of bands in addition to Soundgarden and the Seattle scene. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, but she ended up be, you know, marrying Chris Cornell. Later on, mm-hmm. and um, so a local DJ by the name of uh, Jonathan Poneman or Poneman, I, I hope I'm not butchering the name. I know I am. Uh, he heard Soundgarden perform, really liked them, and, and um, 
Kim Thayil suggested that he team up with Bruce Pavitt, which he did after after he put up twenty grand uh, to start a uh, sub pop. So they they started the label and they signed Soundgarden and they released their debut single "Hunted Down." The B side to the record was "Nothing to Say," which I, I love that song, man. Nothing to say. Mm-hmm. It's a real, you know, it's kind of a soft, hard, uh, kind of a slow, hard, you know, real, uh, just a, a heavy song. Um, they then released the EP's Screaming Life and FOP in 1987 and 1988, respectively. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure, Jerry, why they left Sub Pop. Because at this point, they signed with a label called SST Records, an independent label, and uh, they actually released uh, Ultra Mega OK. I love that title, man. Yeah. Well, SST, I don't know if you're familiar with a lot of the L.A. punk scene bands from the early 80s, mid-80s, but SST mm-hmm. is a record label that was started by Greg Ginn of Black Flag. Oh, really? So I think, I think Nirvana, well, not Nirvana, but Soundgarden probably figured, hey, you know, SST has a lot of punk cred with Black Flag and Bad Brains and other bands that they've signed. So he probably figured, ah, it'd be cool to be on a real punk label, which doesn't make sense at all because Soundgarden is not a punk band by any stretch. But uh, it's cool to say that you're, you're an SST band, I guess. So maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah, for sure. I, um, yeah, it, you know, Ultramago, Ultramago, okay, which contained the flower. The first single that, well, the first single that was uh, released was was Flower, and they released that mm-hmm. in May 1989, and uh, actually has um, 12 tracks on that on that album, and. Uh, Smokestack Lightning was another one that, um, that kind of hit pretty well. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with those those particular songs, Jerry. Uh, Flower, I've heard of Flower. Yeah, I, I know the whole album. It's it's a very strange album for like not a major label debut, but for like a full length debut. It's the songs are very odd, especially for a late '80s release when everything was kind of mainstream and glam rock and uh-huh. hair metal and all this horrible stuff that was on MTV. Um, Ultra Mega OK stands out. It's a very heavy, dark, almost psychedelic album in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Listen to some of those songs. There's uh, some songs that actually have, sounds like the tape was played backwards. Really? And like sped up. And yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, I like that album. It's not listenable to someone who is probably only like a Black Hole Sun fan. If you really only know, you know, Super Unknown uh-huh. or maybe even Bad Motive. If you know the trendy albums from Soundgarden, you're not going to like Ultra Mega OK. <laughs> but if you like if you like Soundgarden for the wide array of different sounds and styles and, and Chris Cornell extending his voice to the ultimate limits of hitting the highest note possible, um, you'll find that on Ultra Mega OK. And I like it. I think it's great. It's just, it's not so accessible to, you know, your top 40 Soundgarden guy, I would say. I see. I see. Yeah. Then, uh, yeah. Or, or maybe the, um, uh, down on the upside, right. If you're, if you're one of those, yeah. If you, 
Yeah, I, I like that album too. I mean, that's definitely when they got away from heavier stuff. Um, no doubt. You know that record, but yeah, we'll get into that. I imagine. <laughs> yeah, of course, man. And, and, and but you know, it's interesting you say that because uh, about the album, uh, Chris Cornell was quoted as saying uh, on Ultra Mega OK that the production wasn't what we were after uh, at all, and that sort of hurt us critically. Um, but all music staff writer uh, Steve Huey gave the album four out of five stars. And uh, so, you know, I think uh, it was kind of a, a foreshadowing, you know, uh, although it, commercially it wasn't a big hit, you know, the album. And uh, but it actually got nominated for a uh, for a Grammy, Jerry, believe it or not. Hmm. For best metal performance, it got nominated, didn't win, but, you know, so. I think it was just a matter of time before, you know, Soundgarden became Soundgarden, you know, hit the big time. And, but, uh, this was, this album was kind of, uh, you know, again, like I said, a, kind of a, a, a sign of things to come, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely did not hear that album first. Had I heard ultra mega. Okay. First, mm-hmm. I probably would have not, you know, understood Soundgarden and just figured that it's too weird. They're too dark. They're too, you know, the, tuning's too weird, the vocals are too strange, and I probably would have left and came back, you know, to Soundgarden, you know. Luckily, I heard a more accessible album first, and then I realized that I really liked this band, so going to Ultra Mega, it wasn't too left field for me, I guess. Mm. But yeah, of all their albums and their catalog, it's by far the strangest album. Definitely, man. Yeah, I I totally agree with that, because... Yeah, the first album I heard was Bad Motor Finger, which we'll get into in just a few minutes. But uh, also, you know, Jerry, I wanted to uh, point out that Cornell was uh, also stated that the producer of, of, of Ultra Mega OK was not familiar with what was going on in Seattle. So that might have, uh, you know, affected the production also, you know. But the, but the record mm. company wanted uh, that producer because they, they could get a good deal on the, produ- you know, on the production. They probably charged them less, or you know, it was probably a money thing, you know. Um, he even, re- I mean, he even said that it was, it was, he regretted it because he regretted that uh, the way you know, you going with that producer because that was supposed to be one of their best albums, um, you know, obviously their debut or their debut LP. And but I think they turned out all right, Jerry. What do you think, man? <laughs> I think it turned out cool, and I, I'm kind of like glossing over something here that um, Jack and Dino worked on the album a little bit too. He worked on that song Flower, at least a rough mix of it. So, you know, I guess at the time in the late 80s, he was like one of the go-to producer guys producing Nirvana, producing Soundgarden, playing in Skin Yard. <laughs> uh, uh. You know, he was the Jack of many trades, literally. But yeah, I think because it was early in their career and because they were kind of shopping around with different labels. I think they even recorded that album like in Oregon instead of in Seattle. I think um, they weren't focused the way they should have been focused. I think the material and the songs are fine. They're just really kind of strange and different, but I think they just needed to be more uh, regimented, you know, like, hey, let's record in Seattle. Let's use a regular producer guy and and let's stick with the label that's going to support us. And I think that's when we get into Louder Than Love. Yeah, uh, exactly, Jerry. And uh, you're, yeah, 
Jack and Dino, uh, he was he was involved with the the mixing, the remixing the album, and uh, he completed a rough mix of, of Flower. And um, but yeah, Jack and Dino, man, that guy's a a key a key figure, huh? So so yeah, louder louder than love gets released. Their next album, their second studio album. Uh, 1989, and uh, you know I like the album cover of that man. I can't really tell what's going on in that album cover. Have you seen that, Jerry? It looks like someone. Cool. Yeah, it's very. I mean, if there's a, I would say if there's a defining um, album cover for any Soundgarden album, I think that's the best. It's the best album cover because it that? just has all the raw, raw power, raw energy. It's kind of like if you look at 70s records like the Stooges you know, with Iggy Pop, where he's just rocking out on the cover of one, yeah. you know, one of those records, it, it kind of has the same raw power effect. And, yeah. and seeing Chris Cornell rocking out with his hair, with his shirt off, <laughs> holding onto the mic, gripping onto the cord, like it's, you know, uh, some crazy rip cord thing that he's stretching. Right. It's cool. It, it, it's very natural, and I think it, it really embodies the energy of the band. So, yeah, it, it's by far, I think, my favorite album cover that they've done. No doubt, Jerry. And I couldn't make out, like I said, man, that's his hair, right? That's his hair. Yeah. He's like he's ducking his yeah, head down and he's like kind of bobbing his head. He's in the middle, like in the middle of bobbing his head or, or banging his head, you know. Rocking out. Rocking out. Rocking out. Yeah, man. And uh, super cool, man. Super cool album covers. That was released in September of 80, 89. And uh, they recorded it in uh, London Bridge Studios, Seattle. And uh, produced by Ter- Terry Date. Uh, the, the, this, the first single release was Loud Love. And uh, another song I love, man. Get on the Snake was the second. Uh, and ju- just to back up with Terry Date, I didn't even know. I didn't know he produced that album, but I know the name because he later worked a lot with the Deftones. Oh, and man. a lot of the mid, mid-90s to late-90s new metal sound. So oh. yeah, that's a, a very familiar name, and and I'd say like the alternative metal and, and rock scene. But yeah, that's cool. I didn't I didn't even know he worked on that album. That's cool. Yeah, along with um, Overkill, he's worked with uh, Slipknot, you know, Pantera, White Zombie, uh, Dream Theater, Limp Biscuit. He's yeah, this guy he, Terry Date, man, very well, very accomplished. Producer. Well, of all those bands, of all those bands you mentioned, Soundgarden by far is the best. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have to agree. I have to yeah. agree. But those, I mean, nonetheless, though, man, those are some solid bands as well. You know, very successful. Um, you know, Deftones for sure. Um, but no, I agree, Cherry. I agree, man. So yeah, they produced that one. Or Terry Date produced that. And uh, there's a song, "Hands All Over," Jerry, which is I don't know, man. It, it might be my favorite song of all time of Soundgarden. I don't know that, yeah, that that's the hit. I think that's the best song on the album too. It's just it's got a cool message. It's like a right. protect the environment, protect your mother earth. You know, um, it's got a cool little like slide guitar. The vocals are awesome. Cool little like. Kim Thiel there's a really cool little guitar kind of hook in it and uh, it's just kind of a fun playful song that isn't really all that dark it's kind of got an uplifting vibe to it I think oh no that's a great way to put it great yeah 
Exactly, man. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of the songs are dark, uh, hard, you know, aggressive. Um, but like you said, it's, it, yeah, definitely uplifting, man. Gives you like a boost, you know. And Louder Than Love uh, was their first uh, album on a major label, which was A&M. Uh, this was the last album with the original bassist hero, Yamamoto. And so comes in Jason Everman. Jerry, are you familiar with that name? Yeah, well, Jason Everman was kind of like a utility guy. Like he played with Nirvana. In fact, yeah. I think he's even featured on the back of the album or the inner cover of the album is just the second guitarist with Kurt. You know and stuff, man. I don't know if what happened with Nirvana and him, maybe, you know, they just didn't need him or whatever, but yeah, he bailed on Nirvana. And then when, when, um, hero actually went to college, I don't know, he's some sort of engineer or something, went to go get his master's. Someone probably suggested to hire Jason Everman on base because everyone knew each other in Seattle. And yeah, he did a tour with them. I think a European tour, but, uh, didn't work out. They didn't want to keep him for whatever reason. Yeah, and then uh, exactly, Jerry. Man, you're good, bro. <laughs> uh, you <laughs> well, this is all memory. I'm not even reading anything. I just remember little things. Yeah, no, you're 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 right on. You're right on, man. And uh, yeah, he he had a yeah he was with Nirvana. He played with Nirvana in the early part of '89. Left in the summer of that year. And then yeah, like you said, he joined Soundgarden. Had a brief stint with Soundgarden, leaving in 1990. And he bre- he does appear on a compilation EP called Loudest Love on a co- cover they did of uh, Lennon and McCartney's song Come Together. And, okay. Uh, yeah. And he leaves Soundgarden to play in a band called uh, OLD, Old Lady Driver Divers, and Mind Funk. And then in 1984, he quits Mind Funk to join the U.S. Army Special Forces, man. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know? But but that's an interesting thing, man. Who does that? You know, he he. he I mean, he here's this guy playing with his great musician. Well, think right? about it. What's if that? you ask him, well, what do you, what what did you do when you were younger? If someone asked, him, well, I played with Nirvana and I played with Soundgarden. It's like, who on earth could say that? Yeah, <laughs> it's, exactly, it's pretty cool man. to put on your resume. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so he leaves and then uh, joins the, the special forces, and uh, you know. But, hey, Jerry, you know what? At this time, let me go ahead and take a break. And then uh, we'll be right back after this after this message. You got it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with Jerry Fellman, music musician extraordinaire. Uh, we're talking about Soundgarden, the epic band Soundgarden from the from Seattle. And uh, before we went on break, Jerry, we were talking about um, the gentleman, uh, Jason Everman, and uh, the album Loud Love. And uh, again, hands all over. And like you said, that's a great message. And Kim Thayil was actually quoted as saying that hands all over is one guitar riff, right? As it is. Yeah. One note, one chord, and then in some ways it's simple, he said, and in some ways it's it's, it's ba- basic and simple. In other ways it's sophisticated. But he said, we don't really have many songs like Hands All Over. And so I thought that was kind of interesting, man, and, and it's true, you know. Uh, 
yeah, it's just one riff, you know, kind of going, you know, an ongoing riff, and uh, it's an uplifting song. It's it's kind of a faster song, but um, I thought that was kind of cool what he said. But the next album, yeah. what, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, you get to some of the other songs on the album. I don't know if you know or listen to the song Gun much. Super kind of slow and sloggy, and and uh, it takes a while to kind of build up to a faster pace, then it gets super fast, then it goes right back to the slower, what you would call the epitome of what a grunge song is, or the grunge sound, real heavy, drop C or drop C tuning, tuning on the guitars, mm. and uh, it's cool, but it really a crazy message, you know, if you listen to the lyrics, he basically says, I got an idea of something we can do with a gun, which later foreshadowed horrible events with Kurt Cobain and other, you know, people that ended up committing suicide or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, some of those moments on Louder Than Love are, are going to kind of, I would say, hearken to the, um, whole ultra mega okay as far as being dark songs and moodier songs. And it yeah. took a while for them to kind of do happier stuff, let's just say. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey Jerry, you just said something, but it kind of epitomizes the uh, the uh, grunge uh, so, uh, yeah. sound. Which was what? Can you repeat that? I was saying the song, the song "Gun." Yeah, on "Louder Than Love." Yeah, but the, the song that song has kind of, like a, what's that? It's really slow. Yeah. It's got like drop D tuning, maybe even drop C tuning on it. It has like it's a real heavy. Like if someone were to come from another planet or another country and want to know, well, what does grunge mean? What is grunge music? Oh. How would you exemplify what a grunge song is? You would put on Nire Than Love and put on the song Gun oh. and at least play those beginning parts of the song that are super slow, oh. super heavy, really tuned down guitars. And then, of course, the song does get faster. It does get a little more up-tempo, but most of the song has that slow, sloggy kind of grungy sound. And I don't know, for me, it just really defines what the grunge sound is. Mm, that's great, man. And you know, like you described the way you describe that kind of reminds me of, uh, maybe Alice in Chains, man. You know, the way their, yeah. their songs are tr- structured. Um, they, well, obviously they're grunge, you know, from the grunge scene. So, um, so the next album, Jerry, I want to get into, the next album, man, you know, which was, um, I think, just catapulted, catapulted Soundgarden into the next level without a doubt. I think Bad Motor Finger, I think one of the greatest works of all time. Some would argue that it's, it's their best album. I don't know. What do you think, Jerry? I'm really curious. You know, I really do like Bad Motor Finger a lot. I would say, for me, I, I was already all in with Soundgarden before that because of Louder Than Love. So I was anticipating very much so what was going to happen with their next album and that being Bad Motor Finger. I was thoroughly impressed and fell in love with it instantly. Um, now, was Bad Motor Finger 91? Yes, September 91. Okay, so yeah. My God, that's like the year that grunge broke because you have you know, Louder Than Love. Well, I'm sorry, you have Bad Motor Finger, you have Nevermind, you have Pearl Jam 10, Jeez. Uh, I think Allison Chain Facelift yeah. was 90 or 91, but right around there. So sure. I mean, it, it's certainly on, in the pantheon there of all these great bands and all these 
great releases that just happened all at once. And if you were like a 15, 16 year old kid, like I was, you were in, you know, rock and roll heaven with all these great releases one after another. And, you know, Soundgarden's uh, Bad Motor Finger just kicked the doors down and they finally got some MTV play. You know, you got to see Outshined, which is a great song, great video. And oh my gosh. I believe Rusty Cage. Unbelievable, Jerry. Man, how spoiled were we, Jerry? I mean... Very spoiled, man. Very spoiled. Jeez. I mean, Pearl Jam 10, you know, Nevermind. Um, you know, Bad Motor Finger. Uh, <laughs> you know, facelift, you know, all these... one, All these... I mean, it, it, you can't describe it, man. It's indescribable, man. You can't... Uh, it was just like a... <laughs> Um, it, you're just inundated with all this amazing, timeless music, and uh, we were there to, you know, we were we were born at the right time, I think, Jerry. You know? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I'm always going to be thankful for the music gods or whomever <laughs> to bless me with the growing up with these albums when they came out and they were new. You know, I, I didn't have to go back and rediscover it. Yeah, I actually got to hear it for the first time by going to an actual record store, buying this audio cassette, playing it in my car, playing it on my home stereo and, and hearing all these great songs for the first time. And yeah, I mean, it was a very glorious time for music for sure. And, and bands like Soundgarden were just so different, you know, so different. Every album was different. Every, you know, different, um, you know, style that they approached, you know, certainly was groundbreaking. I would say, of the big four, you know, the big four grunge bands, you got Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Pearl Jam. I would say Soundgarden, by far, had the most um, growth between albums. Every album is, is so different from the previous. And uh, and I think, yeah, for my money and for most real Soundgarden fans' money, mm. the Bad Motorfinger is their favorite album. Because Super Unknown is great. It has all the hits. It got all the awards. Uh, it sold all the records. But the true essence of Soundgarden is definitely um, Bad Motor Finger. Uh, you know, Jerry, it, it's funny. I, I, I was torn between that and Super Unknown. And like you said, they, you know, Super Unknown you know, had all the hits. They sold all the albums and platinum, the, you know, everything. Um, that was the album that really just shot them up, up into superstardom. But... I think, yeah, like you said, the essence of Soundgarden, when you think of Soundgarden, I mean, it's about bad motor finger, man. And I think right, a close, a close, very close second is super unknown. But I think when, you co when it comes down to musically, when, when they, I mean, they really made strides musically with um, bad motor finger, you know, and uh, you made, like, you know, you made some great points, man. I mean, you've got uh, <laughs> the first single that was released, Jesus Christ Pose. Um, what a great song, man. You know, just the, the, everything's just so hard. Everything's just coming at you, you know, the, the drums, the, the bass, the guitar. Yeah, I think they, they had a little controversy, too, with Jesus Christ Pose. I think MTV and maybe a few other outlets weren't completely thrilled with that song because it you know, it can be considered what blasphemy for some, for maybe yeah. Christian or Catholic folks. You know, there's a video too of, I believe, 
Chris Cornell is literally in a Jesus Christ pose um, for some of that song. So I, I, you can see how certain religious factions were probably not too thrilled with him uh, portraying their Lord and Savior in a, in a maybe blasphemous way. But uh, it's a good song. It's okay. It's not my favorite song on the album, but it's interesting for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, in uh, Kim Thales quoted as saying, "The song's groove reminds me of helicopter blades." I bent the strings at the beginning and end of this song. Uh, I thought that was kind of cool, man. And um, you know, the band kind of uh, they explain the lyrics for Jesus Christ Post as a basically um, as you know they wanted to kind of point out the exploitation of, of religion for personal benefit, you know, so they got, you know, a little political here, uh, under political undertones there. And, um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, I thought it was a good song. And that was the, 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 uh, first, you know, first release, first single. And then, um, the next single that they came out with uh, from the album outshined, which is another great song, man. And, been on movies. Uh, it was on the movie uh, True Romance. I don't know if you re- remember that. I know the movie, but yeah, I didn't know that song was on there. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's in there. Remember Brad Pitt played the stoner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Tarantino movie, or at least yeah, um, he wrote it. Directed, he wrote. What's that? I think he wrote the screenplay. He right. Wrote the screen screenplay directed by uh, Tony Scott. Okay. Rest in peace. But, yeah, rest in peace. Yeah. And, and, but yeah, I thought that was a great song, man. Outshined. And then you got Rusty. And then Rusty Cage. Rusty Cage. You know, it was a good song. Crazy, fast, you know, polyrhythmic kind of thing going on, too. Um, and I, I remember hearing Chris Cornell kind of describe what Rusty Cage is because a lot of mm-hmm. music critics and, uh, journalists, music journalists would always approach Soundgarden and say, oh, you guys sound like Black Sabbath, the heavy, the dark, moody songs. Mm. And, you know, you've got a Sabbath thing going. <laughs> and I think when Chris Cornell was asked about Rusty Cage and that Sabbath comparison came up again, he basically said, well, you can call us a hillbilly Black Sabbath then because <laughs> we have an American hillbilly slant to what Black Sabbath is doing with their, you know, heavy British bluesy sound. Uh-huh. And I thought, yeah, that's a pretty accurate description. It's, it's hillbilly blues and, or hillbilly Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best way to describe a lot cool. of songs and a lot of sound garden stuff. I never heard that, man. Hillbilly Sabbath. <laughs> uh, yeah. And of course, if you remember, Johnny Cash ended up covering Rusty Cage on his uh, album that he did with Rick Rubin. And it became a big hit and a big single for him. No way. I never knew that. Yeah. And oh. that's kind of funny to see how the song got revitalized and reimagined in a, a totally different way with uh, the Johnny Cash cover version. Oh, I he did it on his... Uh, yeah, it, it's really cool. He did it on... Um, I guess he did like a country rock record in like 95. He had Rick Rubin produce it. And... Um, he got a Grammy for it. Yeah, I did not crazy. Know that, Jerry. Yeah, you have to you have to look. So he did uh, Rusty Cage, and he did 
Nine Inch Nails Hurt. Those are the two cover songs we did, but man, he did an awesome take, especially on Rusty Cage, because, you know, it does kind of have a country hillbilly flavor to it, and uh, it just translated really well. Wow, I got to check that out. I got to check that out, man. Um, thanks for, thanks for, yeah, thanks for the little insight, man. And then, so, yeah. yeah, man, you know, and then you got new, new damage, you know, face pollution, um, room, room a thousand years wide. I mean, this whole, the whole album is just unbelievable, man. Cool song. Yeah. Yeah. Genius, you know, genius album. Um, you know, so I, I mean, it sold 2 million copies. You know, I think that, like I said, man, I think that was their, that was the album, that was a big breakthrough, I think, Jerry, right? Would you agree? Absolutely, yeah. And there's even like a couple songs that don't get much play, but a song called Mind Riot. Oh, I love that It's song. actually, yeah, beautiful, it's a beautiful song. It's got great little, you know, bass and guitar intro in the, in the beginning, and then you think it's going to be kind of uplifting and, and happy, and then it just goes real dark, real quick. Yeah. But... But in a beautiful kind of way, it comes right back to that beginning intro riff, and it's cool. It's got such range, you know, that the whole album's just got great range of kind of melancholy, happy and sad and up and down, and it's just the whole composition of the whole record is it's proof that they were maturing. You know, it's becoming a mature band and not relying on tricks and gimmicks and just relying more on songwriting and, and good composition. <laughs> yeah, I like that, tricks and gimmicks. Uh, they're becoming legit for sure, man. And then, uh, but yeah, and then critically, all music gave it a four and a half stars. Yeah, Los Angeles Times, four and a half stars. Um, yeah, Rolling Stone, four again, four and a half. Yeah, just uh, solid, you know, solid. And, and then you can find it on uh, all time greatest albums list, you know. Um, but um, what what a, what a what an awesome piece of work, man! And then I like the uh, the logo, man, of that uh, the artwork they did for that lo- um, artwork for the uh, yeah it's, cover. It's cool. It's I, I've seen people with that tattoo. You know, there's a lot of shirts that have been made that that still use that logo, that emblem. Uh-huh. I don't know if, if it's really the official logo because so many bands at some point like to have uh, some sort of branding, uh, whether it be a logo or some sort of iconic symbol that just kind of gives a symbology of this symbol is our band. And I, I think the bad motor finger swirling circle, whatever it is, yeah. some sort of tribal swirling circle. I don't know if that really, you know, embodies the symbol symbolism of what the band is, but yeah, it's cool. It's huh. definitely a, uh, iconic people most people that see that symbol know it means sound garden so for sure for sure it's almost, it looks like a saw blade or something i don't know like <laughs> and uh, yeah it's it, you know it kind of looks like a doodle like some kid was doodling in high school and <laughs> drew it and hey that's a good album cover let's use it i, I don't know if it's the best artwork you can hope to find to, <laughs> to use as a symbol or whatever but hey they used it it worked for them and you know, it's still something that exemplifies the band to this day. Yeah, for sure. My brother uh, gave me a Soundgarden T-shirt. Uh, I don't know, about, maybe four years ago. Four, I want to say four or five years ago. And uh, it was a bad motor. Fi- actually, 
it says Soundgarden it on it across the top, and then with the uh, Bad Motor Finger logo or artwork on it, it's kind of a cool shirt, man. So yeah, it's cool. I thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah, but uh, no doubt, man. Uh, again, timeless album, unbelievable, man. And then we, uh, you know, it comes in. Uh, here comes a uh, super unknown in 1994 released you know it's the breakthrough the mainstream breakthrough the mainstream breakthrough you know and uh and how i knew how i knew this was their breakthrough not only did they have the big singles the big hits the videos all that but i remember in 94 going to costco and costco was just starting to get cds and like vhs tapes and they were starting to kind of build up their media sections and I think up to that point in 94, Costco was just mainly known for big bulk amounts of food. Um, (laughs) But I remember looking through their media section, which was just books and VHS tapes, and they just started getting CDs. And and I mean, DVDs didn't even exist. So it was VHS is a CD. And I remember seeing a whole section for Super Unknown and Soundgarden. And I just knew at that moment, seeing Soundgarden being able to be purchased at Costco right next to like the Eagles and Elton John, that's, that's how you know they made it. You know, they're now with all these right. other mainstream artists and they're no longer this underground band that you have to go to CD record stores to buy. They're now pretty much as mainstream as Barbara Streisand. Yeah, exactly, man. Yeah. It's uh. so I was a senior when they, when the, uh, this song came or not the song, the album Super known, March of 1994. I was a senior in high school, but I didn't really start listening to um, Soundgarden until '95. And uh, I was in wow, the- late bloomer. Yeah, I was, man. And, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, I missed out. Uh, but I, I was in the listening to too much, huh? probably too much Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre before then, right? Yeah, Is that what you're listening to? Too much of the chronic. <laughs> too much of that chronic, man. If you know what I mean? <laughs> Which is cool. I, I listen to that too, so that's no big deal. Right? Yeah, you know that was that was the thing, man. We, we not even all that stuff was just great, man. I mean, again, we were spoiled, Jerry. And, uh, well, you know, before you go any further with Soundgarden, mm-hmm. you missed a couple like key moments. One was the 1991 Lollapalooza tour, which featured Soundgarden. Oh. And Pearl Jam together, which is friggin' phenomenal. And then also, prior to that, they released Temple of the Dog, which was a supergroup band oh, yeah. featuring members of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam that basically just came together because Andy Wood, who was the singer of uh, Mother Love Bone right. and a roommate of, of Chris Cornell, had died of an overdose at a yes. real young age of like 24. And Chris Cornell, being a drug user and whatever else, but trying to be sober and a rock musician on his own, he didn't know how to reconcile the death of his best friend and roommate. So he wrote a bunch of songs that essentially became the Temple of the Dog album, recruited the only people he knew, which were the ex-members of Temple of the Dog, that eventually became Pearl Jam. And then because Pearl Jam was pretty much forming at that time, he invited an unknown singer who was now hired or, found to be the singer of Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder, to also sing on that album. Right. And then there's, you know, three or four beautiful songs on that record that Eddie Vedder and 
Christopher Nails to share vocals on. And and that album to this day, from start to finish, is an A plus, you know, 10 out of 10, I would say. It's just a, a perfect representation of that time and those bands. And, and also, if you were fortunate enough to see Lollapalooza in 91, you got to see not only both bands play separately, but um, I think several stops throughout that tour, they would come together and they would do some Temple of the Dog songs together as well. I didn't go. My first Lollapalooza was 93, so I missed that year. I think it was 92, actually. It was the 92 Lollapalooza. Oh, My God, how, how cool. How cool would that have been to see that tour and, and oh. those two bands? And yeah, that's pretty amazing. And then the other thing uh-huh. that uh, that we missed, but um, I think it was in 92 as well, the, the single soundtrack for the movie Singles, the yeah. Cameron Crow film, yes. featured Fifth Cornell as an actor, but also featured a couple great songs that didn't appear on any Soundgarden albums anywhere. Like Ritual was one. And I think the other one is Changes. That's an acoustic song. The first time you heard Chris Cornell play acoustic and without a, a, an accompanying band. And both of those songs are just awesome, beautiful compositions that uh, just are standalone songs that didn't ever appear on any other album. So, so um, Seasons. And that, what was the other one? Birth Ritual? I think it's Changes. I have to look it up. Oh, oh yeah. no, no. I'm sorry. The other one's Ritual. Ritual. And that's that's cool. Yeah. Solo. And that's Soundgarden. That's so Soundgarden did the ritual song. Seasons. And then Cornell. the other one. Seasons is Cornell. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. But for all your listeners out there, if you've never heard of the single soundtrack, that's the one to stop what you're doing and download it or buy it or whatever because it has great songs by Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, of course, uh, Paul Westerberg of the replacements. Even Smashing Pumpkins throw a song in there for good measure. Allison Chains has the song Wood on there. So, yeah. yeah. Oh. That's like a, a, a greatest hit of the grunge era all in one on one album. So, Without a doubt, Jerry. That, I'm glad you brought that up, man. First with um, uh, Mother Love Bone, or not, um, Temple of the Dog. You know, you had, the, mm-hmm. you, know, um, you know, Cornell, Jeff Ammon, uh, Matt Cameron, Stone Gossard, Mike McCready, and Eddie Vedder, uh, like you mentioned. Yeah, they left out Tim Style. Isn't that too bad? I get what they thought he was busy. <laughs> I'm sure he was available, but I get why he wasn't involved because it was just Chris embracing the ex-members of Mother Love Bone. So I, I understand um, why Tim was left out, you know, and there was no bass player necessarily for Soundgarden at that time. I think they were just hiring Ben Shepard so it's yeah. basically Chris. It's Chris with uh, Mother Love Bone. And I don't know what's going on with the Mother Love Bone drummer, but they brought in Matt Cameron to cover whatever absence that drummer had. But yeah, it's a beautiful album and definitely worth checking out if you don't know it for sure. Oh, man, I, I love that album. I love that album. I think, and the, the drummers for, um, there were two drummers for Mother Love Bone, Greg Gilmore and Reagan. Hagar. Um, okay. Greg Gilmore was there from 88 to 90, and then Hagar was there from uh, 87 to 88. Mm-hmm. From 80, yeah. Oh, and there's a, a there's a Mother Love Bone song on the single soundtrack as well. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, but I, I have to say this, and I might get a little flack or, <laughs> or a little, some of your listeners being upset or whatever, but I'm not a Mother Love Bone fan, though, myself. Right. And I, I have my reasons. 
Yeah, it's you know, it's kind of like that bad hair metal sound. Uh-huh. It's like that late '80s transition from hair metal to grunge. Uh-huh. And Andy Wood himself did the makeup, did the big hair. He's kind of a hair metal guy, you know. And and for me, a lot of that Mother Love Bone record, that Apple record, it, it's kind of hair metal. Mm-hmm. So. That's just me. That's just personal taste. I'm sure there's a lot of grunge and and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden fans that love Mother Love Bone, think it's a great album. But for my money, eh, I skipped it, and I didn't feel like I missed anything. I didn't miss anything. <laughs> hey, teach his own, Jerry. You know, so you're, you're not a yeah, big, uh, yeah, no. You're not a big Poison fan, or, or Warrant. No, <laughs> no. Uh, so would you would you classify them along those lines, Mother Love Bone? I mean, I think that they, they straddled that line for sure. They're like one foot in, one foot out. Mm. Like, you know, there's no question Pearl Jam and, and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden have you know, nothing to do with hair metal, nothing to do with that bad kind of glam rock, late 80s sound. They're completely removed and totally different. But in Mother Love Bone, there are definitely elements of it for sure. <laughs> I love you. Hey, man. Each his own, man. I'm not, I'm not gonna. Yeah. You know. It's all good. Yeah. Uh, but definitely, I, but, it's a good point you brought up, man. That's yeah, a, but back to Super Unknown, of course, the the big breakthrough, the monster album. For sure, for sure, man. Um, I I was gonna continue talking about Temple of the Dog, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> could, yeah, the, the, you know, real quick, but that album was unbelievable man say hello to heaven and hunger strike and you know all these great songs man pushing um pushing forward back and uh just uh, reach down you know but uh great tribute album for sure andy wood and uh so yeah back to uh so super known you know now they're in the mainstream here and you know black hole sun jerry uh, yeah, comes out. You know, I, I think that was the. Uh, I want to say that was the debut album. Uh, I'm sorry, the debut, the single, the first single, Spoon Man. Yeah, Black Hole Sun. It was Spoon Man. Actually. I, well, Spoon Man, which is funny, and I, and I've been listening a lot about the single soundtrack, but uh, the riff from Spoon Man is featured in the single soundtrack, or it's, it's featured in the movie. You can hear the, the Spoon Man riff that's played kind of in between scenes and the single soundtrack because you could tell Chris Cornell was working out the idea for the song and then it appeared yeah, two albums later. Movie. You've never seen it. Wow. I have to it's see not it very movie. good. Huh? It's, as far as like a, a love story, it's kind of like a precursor to friends. It's kind of friends-ish. So it's like 20-something sleeping with one another trying to find their way in the world. Okay. So as a story, and it's not very good <laughs> but <laughs> it, sh- it shows my performances of Soundgarden and it shows how it's changed it's, it's awesome for that aspect I gotta see it though Jerry yeah you gotta see it and for, for God's sake get the soundtrack the soundtrack is a thousand times better than the movie <laughs> yeah I, I, this, I think the soundtrack made the movie for sure yeah Without a doubt. and you know it's Cameron Crowe Cameron Crowe director just the it work Cameron Crowe right he directed it He's a, yeah, he's a Seattle guy, so it kind of makes sense that he did something for his hometown. Oh, I didn't know he was from Seattle. Jerry Maguire. Yeah. 
which is a great movie too. Yeah, that would be a great episode as a standalone episode too. Is show me the money. It's done, Jerry. You're you're, you're on it, man. <laughs> we'll get you on that one. You know, and uh, yeah. yeah, So, and I think um, if I'm not mistaken, I heard Allison Chains appears in the, or is this, there's a band that appears in the movie. Well, I know Soundgarden does for sure. Okay. They're playing the ritual song. Okay. In the movie, there's a concert scene. I, I I'm trying to remember if Alice Chains is in it or not, but hard hard to tell or just remember at this point. But um, there's definitely some acting from a little bit of Chris Cornell and then Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam do some some bad acting in it. So. <laughs> is that right? And then at, the main star, more or less, is Matt Dillon. Plays basically a, a Chris Cornell lookalike with a horrible wig and the camouflage shorts and those Doc Martin boots. And uh, who is it that plays that? Matt Dillon. Oh, he's, he's a, a bad Chris Cornell, huh? Well, I mean, they, I'm sure the wardrobe department just said, "Well, let's figure out how we're going to make him look grunge." What about this guy over here? This guy Chris. Yeah. Copy his costume or whatever <laughs> he's wearing. Put him on that. Oh, and Matt Dillon has like long hair, right? In the movie, not in real life, but yeah. Yeah. And it, it was that movie based in Seattle? Yeah. Yeah, it's all in Seattle. Oh. Basically like the, like the show Friends, but in Seattle, you know, it's based on the apartment building and all these different good-looking 20-something-year-old people speaking with one another. It sounds like... To find their... Yeah. It sounds like Friends meets... Uh, what was that other popular show, Jerry, late 90s... Uh... Like Melrose Place. Melrose Place, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Friends meets Melrose Place meets uh, Party of Five or something. What's that? It's also a bit like uh, this movie by, um, well, I forget the guy's name, but anyway, Reality Bites. You know Reality Bites with Ethan Hawke? Yeah. My own writer? Yeah. Okay. It's a lot like that, too. I think Reality Bites came out after the single, so the premise and the story and the intertwining relationships are very similar. And oh. coincidentally, Ethan Hawke plays like a grunge singer. I see. Like a, a conflicted, kind of emo, sad grunge singer guy. So those two movies are kind of like bookends of one another. Ah, okay. I, but I definitely want to see uh, singles, man. If I, if I see singles, I probably don't have to watch. I probably don't have to see um, Reality Bites, right? <laughs> no. You can skip Reality Bites altogether because the soundtrack sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll do that, man. You know, but uh, going back to super, super unknown, man. You know, I was, again, I was in the Navy, and, and I remember I was in. Uh, you might appreciate this because I, I know you were born. Well, you were born in Oregon, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I was in. I was in. Uh, I had a friend. I was in the uh, on the ship with me. He was uh, my shipmate, as we used to call him, and. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we were. Uh, he he was from Cottage Grove, Oregon, outside of uh, Eugene, and Cottage Grove, Oregon was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the site where, or the town where um, the movie Stand by Me was filmed. Okay, that was their kind of their, like their little claim to fame, and uh, or, or at least parts of it, whatever. But. You know, we were uh, we were hits where he he lived. He was from, so we 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 drove about from Seattle. It was about uh, I don't know two and a half uh, three hours down to uh, 
that that little town outside of Eugene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we actually drove on the way back. We we went down there for the weekend. We had to be back by Monday, and then we were just cutting it close, man. We left uh, Sunday. I don't know. It was probably midnight. We were doing some. We were just eighteen, nineteen year old kids, man. And uh, we drove his truck back, and I remember driving back. It was like 3, 4 in the morning, man. We left. We had to be back by 7. But my point being is that we, the, the CD, super. this CD was in, in, in the play deck, you know, pl- uh, super unknown. So I listened to the whole CD on the way back, man. And I remember thinking, holy shit, you know, this is good, man. This is, this is. Oh, yeah. That's it, when I really been smuggling. Huh? The songs are just so dialed in by that point. Oh, yeah. You could tell Soundgarden was operating like a machine. You know, the songs were very structured, focused. They didn't have any filler. Um, it's, again, it's not my favorite album, but it definitely has the sense that this is a very confident band, a very um, well-oiled machine kind of band, and they knew what their sound was, and they knew who they were as far as musicians and right. you know, pushing the limits, pushing the limits of musicianship. And I would say Chris's voice never sounded any better than on that album. You know, oh, the, you know, the high notes, the low notes. And my favorite track is Bell on Black Days. Oh, yeah. Which I think was a single too, not as big as Black Hole Sun, of course. But that song, just the way he has such emotion in his voice and sad very moody but i do like if you listen to just the verse parts and how they lead to the chorus it gives you chills it's one of those songs that it's like wow this is this song pretty much is correct you know and unfortunately we learn all too much about that later in life when he decides to leave us but yeah but it's it's kind of autobiographical i think for him absolutely and and it's always been probably my favorite soundgarden song i'd say of all time that's your, that's your song that's your favorite song of all time i'd say so yeah i mean if i were to list them all fell on black days probably is is up there it's one or, or it's number two for sure for sure what was the second one number two you said well i mean i think for my money that would probably be number one it's Number Mind two, Riot? I think yeah, something like Mind Riot or even um, it's not called Holy Water on Bad Motor Pinger. Oh, really yeah. Love Holy Water. But but yeah, probably Mind Riot and, and is number two. But that whole era and and that whole sound, yeah, it's really something mm. special to see an artist at their peak like that. You know. Oh, for sure, Jerry. My wave. You know, the day I tried to live. Head down. I, I love that song. Head down, man. Born on the Fourth yeah. of July. You know. Oh, Fourth of July. Yeah, that's a great one. It's really dark oh, and no. really grungy. Yeah. Not born on the Fourth of July. It's Fourth of July is the, the title. But, but yeah, Fourth of July. Yeah, it's a good one. Great song. Yeah, I mean, it is a great album. I think for me, being like a fan from the beginning, seeing how they got so big out of nowhere, it seems. Um. I think maybe that's why I was a little bit bitter about Super Unknown because it's like, ah, now everyone likes my band, you know? No one cared about him when I was listening to him by myself in the parking lot at high school in 1991. You know, they thought I was weird and they thought the music I liked and Soundgarden was weird and now these same people 
that were listening to friggin' Garth Brooks or whatever the hell they're listening to, you know, <laughs> are now out buying albums, Town Garden albums, and now they're buying Super Unknown. And yeah. I guess that made me a little resentful of the album, and it's probably better than I'm giving it credit for, just because I had that, you know, somewhat bitterness that this is the moment your underground little fan that was your kind of discovery and you and your fans enjoyed it just amongst us. Sure. Now it's kind of taken from you and now pretty much dispersed throughout the world on MTV, on the radio. And what you had and what you held as special is no longer special. Now it's available for everyone to consume yeah. and then just spit out when they're done with it. And then it's no longer special for anyone. And, you, you know, Jerry. that happened with Nirvana. That happened with House of Chains, certainly throws that. Yeah. And Super Unknown was the moment it happened to Soundgarden, you know. And it's it's fine. I mean, they got their Grammy. They got their mega million record sales. Yeah. You know. They got everything that they probably wanted to stand. Without probably them. more so. Probably more so than they wanted. You know, you know demand for them to be touring and interviews and whatever. But, you know, they hit it. They hit that pinnacle. So they deserved it for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, and then when you compare Bad Motor Finger critically to uh, sound, uh, Super Known, um, you know, Bad Motor Finger received a lot of four and a half stars, B minuses. Um, Super Known received A's across the board, and pretty much five stars and A's, A's my A minuses across the board. Los Angeles Times, um, actually three and a half stars, but uh, Entertainment Weekly A. Um, all music five stars, Rolling Stone four stars. You know, Rolling Stone album guide five stars, uh, Spin magazine five stars. So, yeah, I mean, and like you said, man, they, this was the they, they hit everything they probably ever wanted. Um, you know, greatest uh, the greatest albums of all, all time lists. Uh, Rolling Stone five hundred greatest albums of all time number ranked three hundred thirty five. 100 Greatest Albums of the 90s, number 30, 38. Uh, so, Spin Magazine, you know, top 20 albums of 94, number 17. So, obviously, man. And then they five times platinum. So, so uh, Super Unknown, man, was the... Uh, was the I think it sold 8 million copies worldwide. Oh, oh, yeah. And that, that was just the U.S. alone. Uh, and... The general public at large. Everyone loved the album. Certainly the Grammys recognized them. And they got a Grammy uh, in 95 for Black Hole Sun for Best Hard Rock Performance. And then they also got a Grammy for Two Men as Best Metal uh, Performance. So what the hell? Just going to give them a Grammy in two different categories. Two different categories for two different genres of music. You know, are they hard rock? Are they metal? They didn't know what the hell to categorize them as. <laughs> you know, they just knew they were mainstream. And I guess you know, the Grammys, whatever they figured, it's a great band. They're really heavy. They have they have long hair, but they must be metal. But they're more softer at times. So maybe they're hard rock. Yeah. We don't know. But let's give them Grammys for both songs anyway. Yeah. Yeah. They, they won. Um... Which? Go ahead. I was going to say, which is funny because those two songs are my least two favorite on the album, really, but hey, whatever. Black, Black Hole Sun? I've, I've never been a fan of that. And then Food Man is just, 
kind of a silly song. Hey, Jerry, you're cutting, you're cutting out. Are you there? Oh, is that better? Yeah, there you go. Okay. I was just saying, you know, Spoon Man is just kind of a silly song. It's, it's, I would say it's kind of like a throwaway song. It doesn't really have a lot of meaning. It's just kind of funny. <laughs> Writing a song about a guy who plays spoon, you know. But, hey, yeah. what do we know? I guess yeah. the Grammys real better because they gave him the big award. Right, right. And so they they got the, they did get the Grammy, right? Yeah, two of them for that album. They got two Grammys for uh, yeah yeah okay. Well, it was nominated for Grammy for best rock album. And then they got individual Grammys for best hard rock performance and best metal performance, which is weird. I don't know how they quantify that. Like. Yeah. What do you consider a metal performance or a rock performance? But anyway, that's what they they award Grammys for. So yeah, they got two awards, two Grammys on that. Not for album of the year, but for the song Spoon yeah. Man and Black Hole. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, Jerry. Yeah, and then so yeah, man. Super unknown. And by this time, you know, Soundgarden is just uh you know, established themselves as a powerhouses man a powerhouse you know and then they came out with uh, down on the upside 1996 um and then a sides in 97 uh after that which you know going back to that one didn't get really awesome jerry get, i can really hear you bud oh shoot Okay, sorry. How about now? Is this better? Yeah. You sound like you're kind of moved in a blanket or something. Oh. Okay, maybe that'll be better. But uh, I'm just saying, I'm getting the upside. Yeah, it didn't have the sale, and it didn't have the single that people know it had, and a lot of people just kind of dismissed it as they're known, and now they're kind of on the daytime. But I, I revisited that album recently, and it's just a really good song about it. Hey, Jerry? Yes. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, yeah, you were cutting out, but the last 10 seconds there. Oh, crap. What, what were you saying? I was just saying, don't look for it. I'll, I'll have to listen to it again. It's just that I listen to it. That's a really good song. It, it really is a better album than it's got for. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. And then, um, you know, they came out with Telephantasm in 2010, and then King Animal. Um, what was that? The 2017, I think, right? No, King Animal is to be 2012. 2012, yeah. Yeah, I'm waiting. Wow. Yeah. Ahead of myself there, huh? I heard like a song called which I never really liked it. I think it was played on uh, Anarchy, Kings of Anarchy. I, I believe they played it on kind of soundtrack, or it was on movie episodes of Anarchy. And honestly, I don't think they're kind of song. Just kind of like a, a throwaway rocker. Jerry, beyond that song, you're you're you're, cut, you're cutting in and out, bud. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, I just think the rest of that album is 
And then echoes of miles uh, scattered across the echoes of mile echo of miles scattered tracks across the path, which was released in the it's a three CD compilation album released in 2014, and uh, you know that was basically uh, well that that was a chronology. Sorry, that wasn't a studio album. Uh, It was compilation. Yeah. But uh, Chris Cornell, man, unfortunately passed away in 2017. You know, and that was just heartbreaking, man. That was just like, if there was one guy, and you know, was um, you know, if, I, if, if there was one guy that I knew was just gonna, you know, live to be a, you know, live out a long life, man. I, I, it was Chris Cornell. I was just what a just shock, unbelievable, man. Yeah. That was pretty tragic. Terrible, man. He, uh, apparently, he, he hanged himself, right? Yeah, on tour, no less. With like an exercise band. Oh my god, man. Yeah, you know, but uh, he, he, you know, left us with uh, unbelievable, you know, music and his voice, and I mean, that's gonna live on forever, man. You know. Um. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, very sad. You know, his wife uh, Susan Silver, you know, wife and manager. Um, I want to say he had. Uh, did he have any children? Uh, um. Yeah, well, he had. I believe one. Well, three children. Yeah, three children. What's that? Second wife. The second wife. He had a couple kids. So. There's two wives in there. Yeah. But I know he, had, yeah, for sure, he had three kids. Um, but uh, you know, Soundgarden left there. You know, they, what a legacy, man! What a legacy, Jerry. You know, Ben Shepard yeah. and Kim Thale. I think uh, I love him as a guitarist. One, I think one of the greatest ever. You know, I don't know if that's very yeah, yeah, underrated for sure. You think he's underrated? I think so. I saw Soundgarden in. Uh, I saw them twice, Jerry. I saw them in two thousand five at the forum and then i saw them again in 2011 i want to say 11 or 12 at the wiltern oh wow uh, yeah i mean they, both shows were just incredible man they, they brought their they really they really uh gave great you know great performances for their fans and uh didn't really you know they didn't they didn't short their fans at all man I'll tell you that much yeah and you know and we didn't even touch on Audio Slave. Yeah, Audio Slave, which honestly, I, I never really got into Audio Slave, to be honest. You know, I, yeah, uh, there's just songs. There's not albums that are worth really listening to or examining. It's more, there's songs that you can cherry pick out of those three albums and and find some good stuff there. But as, as like full albums, they're not that, they're not that great. Really? I mean, I remember weren't they going to be weren't they going to be called Civilian or something like that initially? 
I don't know. I don't know. I was listening, at least trying to listen to yeah. some of the later solo albums, Chris Cornell's solo albums. And the first one, Euphoria Morning, that came out in like 99, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's not bad. I remember that. And then there's a few others that came out, I would say, like, you know, like 10 years later and, uh, and whatnot. And, and uh, at least for me, I can say. I just find them kind of boring, a little meandering at times. <laughs> There's not, not a whole lot of edge to the to some of the solo stuff. Yeah. I think he just had a lot, a lot of producers around, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, making everything sound really polished yeah. and radio friendly. And it just, he just kind of, I don't know, for me, I just find myself getting a little bored and kind of just turning out to a lot of that stuff. There's nothing dangerous about it. It's very simple. Which is, you know, too bad, but yeah, I think right. that's just what he wanted to do. Exactly. Exactly, Jerry. Yeah, man. So, yeah, but um, needless to say, Soundgarden made their mark. Um, they're here to stay. One of the greatest, you know, bands of all time. Rock and roll, grunge, whatever and you want to classify them as. Before, before Chris uh, passed away, I think it was 2017, they were working on a new album, and they had a, a new album pretty much all written, and it was supposed to come out in late 2017, mm. but he ended up dying. And I think right now there's a debate between his uh, his widow and the rest of the band about what to do with the masters, what to do with that material, and as to whether or not they're going to release it. Because if it's anything like King Animal, it's probably really good. It's probably some great stuff on there. But it, there's a weird debate going on about it right now. There's a weird struggle between the family and mm. the rest of the band and what's going to happen with those tapes. So we'll see. Because I, I remember when they were touring before he died that there was discussion of a, a new album coming out that December. So I was like, mm. dope, it's cool. Because yeah. the last album was good. So, of course, when he died, the discussion of that album died. So, yeah. Because, you know, he was super busy. Before he did that last tour, he had been a whole Temple of the Dog reunion. And they had a bunch of shows at the oh. Forum. And he did some other shows with um, Temple of the Dog and that band, Band of Horses. And, and the singer of Band of Horses was kind of stepping in doing the Eddie Vedder part yeah. of the Temple of the Dog stuff. So, Chris was super busy, super active, and I guess probably too busy too active and didn't have a chance to you know, take care of his mental health. Mm. And that's why he resorted to drugs. And that's why he he let bad habits and ultimately fell on black things, if you think about it. And oh. that's why he chose to leave, I guess. It's really sad. There's no explanation or answer why people do other than they just think it's the world's too tough to continue on for whatever reason. But I think for the fans, especially, and for people that want to honor his, his the memory and stuff, yeah. it would be cool to see that final album come out oh. and to be able to, you know, have everyone go out and buy it and hear him one last time, you know, some recordings well, of him dope. and the band one last time. Yeah. So we'll see if that album seems today anytime soon. But I, you know, keep stay tuned and. Keep your ears peeled, peeled at some point for that final record to come out. For 
for sure, Jerry. No doubt, man. And I don't know if you – I wanted to mention something real quick uh, before we go. Um, the um, Cornell c- collaborated with uh, Lane Staley on uh, on the EP, on Allison Chains' EP. Um, I think it's Sap. Oh, Sap, you know. I don't know if you Oh, heard. yeah. Yeah. Great song, right, right Turn. I don't know if you heard that song. I'd have to listen to I, I know Jaw flies pretty well, but that I'll have to listen to it. I haven't heard it in a long time. Yeah, it gets it gets featured. Uh, it gets credited as um as a the collaboration was called Alice Mud Garden, and um, hmm. yeah, and Mark Arm of Mud Honey was also uh, on the vocals, and the song actually came out on uh, the I don't know if you saw that movie Black Hawk Hawk Down in two thousand one. No, don't know it. Yeah, yeah, but apparently I, I didn't. I didn't know that either. But uh, what a great song, man! That whole, well, the whole EP of uh, Allison Chains, but particular in particular that song though, man. Jerry Cantrell comes out uh, at the end of that song and just like uh-huh. his vocals, man. Just uh, he just comes out, you know, just really, you know, at a real high pitch, you know, very. Um, What's the word I'm looking? Just his vocals so, are electric. Let me ask you this then: Are you more Alice in Chains guy or pro, or a sound guy? Um, that's a great question, man. That's a great question. I don't know, Jerry. I, there's no wrong answer. You know, there's no wrong answer. It's just <laughs> preference. I, I'm torn between. I'm equally. You know, I love those guys, both bands equally. You know, I. It's hard for me to just pick one or the other and pinpoint it like that, but. Uh, I don't know, Jerry. I don't know, man. I, at Lane Staley, man, you, you, when you hear that guy live, I mean, he sounds like he's in he's in the studio, you know. It just, yeah, it's, and I think as far as like the deaths of all these great rock singers, he's got the most tragic story, Lane Staley, because it was a slow suicide, like years. Oh yeah, years years in the making of him doing heroin and not eating, and I think when they found him, it was like. Eighty pounds or some crazy amount. Yeah. Like he had lost all his body weight, and apparently, so that's super tragic. But yeah, I mean, here, here's the thing that I was talking to another friend about because you know when all these singers die, they all have funerals, they all have big fan outcries uh-huh. or or big memorials. Uh-huh. No singer had a bigger memorial and and a public outpouring of love and remembrance and everything other than uh, Chris Cornell. And I don't know really why that is, other than maybe just the most recent to die, or when maybe the family decided to put something together. Yeah. But when Lane Staley died, there was really nothing other than some news articles. When Kurt Cobain died, it pretty much was a year that he could stop, and it really put everyone in a, in a bad kind of unknowing mood. But there was no big concert or anything. Um, when violence. Uh, Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots died. It was just a news article. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of sadness there. But when Chris Cornell died, not only was it all over the news, but they organized this huge concert at the Forum where they sold tickets for hundreds of dollars and every band and artist from, you know, the Foo Fighters, the Girl to Metallica, to the Melvins, to members of Pearl Jam, you name it. Who's who? I think the only famous face that wasn't there was Eddie Vedder, which was kind of odd. Huh. But was everyone there. else, 
Yeah, he's the only one. Yeah. Every other huge, famous boxcar icon of the 90s and now, that, that is the who's who of anyone you should know, was there at that Chris Cornell tribute show, the memorial show at the Forum. And mm-hmm. it was pretty crazy. I, I remember I was watching it on YouTube. Someone was streaming it on YouTube. And the audio was bad. The video was bad. But I just wanted to see and hear what all these bands were doing and what they were playing. And it was, uh, I think it was, I'm sure, for charity of some sort. But it was a huge that. event. It was a huge event. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting point, Jerry. Uh, Chris Cornell, yeah, he was, I mean, he was huge, a superstar, right? And not to say, ah, that's, I mean, been, he was around longer, maybe more people knew, but I don't, eh, it's, that's hard to kind of, you know. Um, it's just weird to pass away in that way, you know, suicide, whatever, when you're in your 50s, right. you know, usually it happens in your 20s. Maybe your thirties, yeah. but by the time you're fifty, you're pretty much older, middle aged, established. You're not gonna, you got a family. You're not gonna get the same insecurities or self doubt that you get in your twenties and thirties. You're pretty much established with who you are. You're from your own place. But for whatever reason, I guess those old, you know, insecurities and that depression come back into his life. It hit him hard at his older time in his life. It's uncommon. It's very uncommon. Yeah, it's very interesting, man. And most rock stars, as you know, they check out in their 20s if, if they don't want to be around or whatever. Yeah. Age 27 is usually the club that most big rock stars decide to check out. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's weird, man. It's weird for, for sure. Needless to say, um, yeah, yeah. You you would think at that age, you know, uh, you know, he was set. You know, he had everything. He was well accomplished, uh, family man. You know, it, it's just mind boggling. But uh, but yeah, so of course it's very sad, nonetheless. And needless to say, um, but uh, yeah, Jerry, it's been a heck of a ride tonight, man. It's been a heck of a ride. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry about the audio problem. No, it's no. I understand. No worries. No worries, man. Uh, we'll do this. We'll do. We'll get together in studio hopefully soon. Maybe got to yeah. do the the Jerry Maguire episode. Jerry Maguire would be awesome. <laughs> Jer- Jerry on Jerry. Yeah. Right. I mean that's that, that's the movie when Tom Cruise was was still the shit. He was cool. Yeah. He wasn't doing he wasn't doing jumps and crazy Scientology stuff on Oprah's couch. He was still like a cool dude. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love that movie, man. I, I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, just uh, mesmerized. Yeah, you know, motivation. It was a motivational flick for sure. And uh, but uh, Jerry, I want to thank you for coming on, man. Thank you for taking the time. You know, you're always welcome here, man. You got it. You're you got it, man. It's always fun. You, you're gonna become my uh, co-host here soon. And uh, yeah, for sure. Ladies and gentlemen, and thank you to, to all your listeners. I know we've had quite a bit more since the last time was I was on. Yeah, thank you to your listeners for putting up with me and uh, <laughs> keep them coming. You're doing a good job, so people are listening. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Appreciate it, man. And thank, uh, uh, yeah, you know, the pleasure is all mine, man. And uh, 
we're going to do this again soon. Yeah, man, for sure. Definitely. I'll, I'll be in studio next time, so it'll be like a real broadcast. Absolutely. <laughs> yep, absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to it. And But ladies and gentlemen, we want to thank you for tuning in once again to the 90s Galore podcast. It's always a pleasure for me to sit here and um, talk about music, talk about entertainment, talk about movies, whatever the case may be. I want to remind you to kind of, uh, well, not kind of, <laughs> uh, follow us on uh, Instagram, follow us on Twitter at 90s Galore, and Instagram is at uh, 90s underscore Galore. Uh, drop us a line. Again, we want to we want some suggestions, some recommendations for the one-year anniversary show coming up uh, on the 21st of January. And drop me a voice message. Subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, leave me, again, yeah, voice message on Anchor or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. So um, once again, for Soundgarden, for Jerry Fellman, it's been an awesome adventure tonight. Um, and uh, looking forward to next week when we profile another 90s band, one that you're going to be very familiar with. Um, yeah, I'll leave it a surprise. But uh, again, for Jerry, I'm Andy Zaldivar, your host of the 90s Galore podcast. Until then, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. Take it easy.